And it kind of correlates with something that Audrey Hepburn is said to have said that her mother told her once. That's awful. (laughs) Said to have said that her mother said once. (laughs) Welcome back to the Modern Lady Podcast. You're listening to episode 116. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lindsay, and today we are talking about the art of conversation. In her book, Etiquette in Society, in Business, in Politics, and at Home, Emily Post writes that, quote, nearly all the faults or mistakes in conversation are caused by not thinking, end quote. In a loud and polarizing world, we are starving for great conversations. But in order to have them, we must first become great conversationalists, and it's a skill that not only can be, but should be intentionally developed. But first, this podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. How about you? Do you want more from The Modern Lady? Become a Patreon supporter, and for just $5 a month, you will have access to extra content. Find us by going to patreon.com forward slash The Modern Lady Podcast. You can also support the show by giving us a rating and review on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews, especially on iTunes, can really help others who might be interested find our podcast too. Your comments mean the world to us. This week's shout out goes to BudgetWiz88, who left us a five-star rating on iTunes and said, quote, just wanted to say thanks for helping me with my laundry every Tuesday. Much appreciated. Your new episodes make conquering that mountain much more enjoyable. I just appreciate so much the intelligent, insightful, honest, relevant, and joyful content in this podcast. Thank you for all your time and effort, ladies. End quote. Thank you so much, BudgetWiz88, for leaving us your review. Knowing that we are a part of helping you conquer your mountains of laundry every week truly thrills us to no end. And if you would like to leave us a comment, you can do so on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com, or you can leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, where you can find us at The Modern Lady Podcast. But before we get into today's chat, Lindsay has our Modern Lady Tip of the Week. Bay leaves. What? Again? Yes, it turns out we wanted to know more about bay leaves, so here we are again. And guess what? I'm not the only one passionate about getting to the bottom of these seemingly innocuous leaves. The wonderful website bonappetit.com opens their article on bay leaves with the words, quote, the Illuminati, the Loch Ness Monster, bay leaves, all phenomena that inspire controversy and skepticism. And while we can't speak to the existence of Nessie or secret societies, we can most certainly say this, bay leaves are 100% legit, end quote. Ooh, bon appetit, tell me more. One of the reasons why we don't think bay leaves impact the taste of our food is due to their lack of smell. They aren't strongly odored like rosemary or oregano, but the absence of smell does not mean that they don't have a taste. When they are infused into water or a broth, they add an almost minty flavor with a hint of black pepper and Christmas tree. What they bring to a dish isn't so much about what they add, but what they do. Bay leaves can help a soup or stew feel not so heavy. Bon Appetit goes on to explain that while chilies and spices shout, the bay leaf whispers. Now first things first, 
fresh will add more flavor and dried are fine, but it's likely your dried ones have been sitting in your cupboard for five years now. It's time you throw those out and refresh your stock. If you aren't going to use them on the regular, then store them in the freezer. Here's a test. Take your newly acquired bay leaves and boil two pots of water, equal amounts. Put two to three bay leaves in one and none in the other. When the water cools, take a taste. You should be able to detect a subtle difference, and while it might not be strong, it is all part of the invisible foundation of a taste profile of a finished dish. The taste, as I mentioned earlier, is kind of pine-like, kind of minty. Well, it's kind of like Vicks Vapor Rub because of the chemical eugenol, which is the biggest flavor that stands out in a bay leaf. If boiled for just a short amount of time, that flavor stands out more, but if it simmers for a long time, like in a stew, it becomes softer, like tea. There's one recipe from the website SeriousEats.com that focuses on bay leaves as a standout ingredient, and that is their jerk chicken recipe that sees the chicken being cooked on a bed of smoking bay leaves. Finally, perhaps you've decided that you will go ahead and add those bay leaves to your simmering tomato sauce or stew, or maybe you'll even try brining your turkey this year and add some to the liquid. But if you really want to increase your skills in the kitchen, try your hand at the classic French technique of the bouquet garni. This is a little bundle of herbs that are dropped into a pot while something is cooking in order to infuse flavor. Typically, you would have some fresh parsley stems, a dried bay leaf, fresh thyme, or other green herb like rosemary, savory, or cilantro, and some black whole peppercorns. And you wrap those items up, bundling them with unwaxed cooking twine or some cheesecloth. And there you have it. The foundation of a great meal is ready to go. Well, I just love that description that you started out with, with the mysteriousness of the bay leaf. Oh my gosh, the bay leaf is like the herb equivalent of that um, mysterious, dark, curious stranger standing in the corner of a party and you don't know who it is or where it's going to go, but you're intrigued. (laughs) Hi, bay leaf. (laughs) How are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, but this is so helpful to know because like you mentioned last week, I actually did not know what a bay leaf was supposed to taste like or Mm -hmm. what it was supposed to be doing to the dish and I have seen like in movies and stuff the French way of cooking of throwing that bouquet into their simmering pots and so yeah it's just another arsenal in our uh, in our kitchen skills repertoire. (laughs) Tis the season for warm greetings and merry visiting but what does one talk about? How does one carry on a conversation? What if one has nothing to say? Never fear, dear listener, the modern lady is here. The art of conversation truly is just that, an art. And it's one that comes especially in handy with the holidays around the corner, right, Lindsay? That's right. It is the holiday season, and that means visiting with family and friends, with perhaps a few cocktails, Mm -hmm. and a world that still seems like it's on the brink of spinning out of control, and a population divided on almost every topic. While the mixture of holiday stress plus alcohol plus family might quickly turn in a direction that no one really wants it to. So what can we do? Right, Michelle, this is what we're going to talk about today. So we really strongly believe that we can model what good communication looks like. And like you said in your opening, like so many things that we talk about on this podcast, we believe that it's a skill, but that Mm -hmm. it takes time and practice to master. Mm -hmm. And that's really it. I think that we may not have ever thought about it in an intentional way before. Mm -hmm. Right. So we just talk. Yeah. Um, But we're kind of good at that. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of what we do. <laughs> I don't know if people have noticed, but for the last almost four years now, we've just been talking. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But no, yeah, it's true. Like we, we know that we are supposed to converse, but we never, well, at least I have never received formal training on how to approach conversation. And so I just talk, (laughs) right? But that knowing that there can be a systematic approach to it, that there can be a, you know, a guideline on how to say, what to say, all these different things really helps frame what conversation could be. And it could be so much better than what I think we're, we're used to. And I think it's so fascinating because for something that we haven't been taught formally, Mm -hmm. like you're saying, and that seems to come naturally for some people and not for others, as soon as we started researching, we realized there's actually a very long history of Mm -hmm. teaching conversation. (laughs) So it's something that, yeah, it's just not really developed now in the same way it was throughout history. We'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast. Mm -hmm. But I kept thinking about the childhood chant, the sticks and stones may break my bones, but words shall never hurt me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do a little bit of research into where that came from because we're I keep thinking about words, right? The power of language. Mm. Now, this rhyme, it came out of a good place. It started out like so many things in a good place. It is believed that it first appeared in the March 1862 issue of the Christian Reporter, which was the official newspaper of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And yeah, its intentions were good. It was meant to increase resiliency against bullying and name calling and hopefully avoid physical retaliation. Now, at this point, we have learned a lot over the last maybe decade or so about just how damaging words can be, how the words used against us in childhood can shape who we are as adults, how they can become our inner voice. Now, this isn't actually a weakness. We aren't Mm. weak if we are hurt by the words spoken to us by someone, especially someone who we love and trust. Now, like with everything, this has sometimes been taken to the extreme and people are hurt by everything. And yes, some Mm. resiliency is needed. But I think you and I, Michelle, we really want to express here that we believe that we can make a decision as a family. It can become part of our family culture Mm. to learn how to communicate well with others. And we can, you know, teach our kids and recognize the power of language within ourselves, how we can tear down and build up. Um, We can decide to set that bar higher and model what proper communication looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's about knowing the worth of our words, right? Yeah. And, and realizing that the things that we say do have an impact. And so to choose them well and to choose mm-hmm. them wisely. And that does take uh, development and skill, like what we were saying. Yeah. You know, people are obviously on edge right now. I think we can all admit that I'm on mm-hmm. edge. I don't know about you, Michelle, but like, uh, yeah. I am too, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I know that even, and I'll admit this, that I think before I've even gone into some social situations right now, I'm kind of already role-playing in my head or rehearsing Mm -hmm. like how I might defend certain positions I have. Like I'm already revving myself up almost for a fight before I'm going to something. And that's not a 
good state to be in for such a prolonged amount of time. And I know Mm -hmm. that I'm probably not the only one doing that. Right. And so Mm -hmm. we're kind of in that mode and we're going into the holiday season, which is all about joy and cheer and making new memories (laughs) and goodwill towards all goodwill. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just not something we want to be doing. It's something we want to be very aware of right now. And frankly, it's exhausting to already be having those arguments in your head before you even gone somewhere and you're not giving the other people the benefit of the doubt, right? You already put words into other people's mouths. Mm -hmm. So again, let's set the bar high and learn about the art of conversation. Mm -hmm. And you know what? That's what I love about what we've been learning about conversation is that I'm starting to realize that there can be different purposes to our conversations. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about, I think what we're really talking about are those great conversations, the one Mm -hmm. that you, the ones that you walk away from feeling like void or um, enlightened or that you understood something or learned something new. And the differences between those kinds of conversations we really want versus the kinds that we may fall into more often than not is because it's actually more relational than we think right? Mm -hmm. It's actually more about the relationship between two people than it is about the subject matter itself often enough. And when you think of it from that perspective, then you start to realize that to be a good conversationalist, you actually don't necessarily have to be, you know, the most erudite or intelligent person or have the most vast vocabulary or a ton of life experiences or your notes all ready to go. Um, when you're entering into a conversation with somebody else in an attempt to strive for that deeper understanding because you care about the other person, uh, that can really help switch the mind frame and the perspective of what it take, what it's going to take to elevate the talk. Yes. And dare I say, it's not just about or for the deeper conversations. We are going to be having quick conversations sometimes at bigger mm-hmm. gatherings. It really yes. should be every interaction that we have that we set the the tone if we can and be intentional about leaving every interaction, no matter how short or how long, leaving the other person feeling good. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's that quote from St. Teresa of Calcutta, better known as Mother Teresa. And she said, let no one ever come to you without feeling better and happier. Mm-hmm. Be the living expression of God's kindness, kindness mm-hmm. in your face, kindness in your eyes, kindness in your smile. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's the person that's ringing through your Christmas gift purchases as somebody who worked in retail selling Christmas gifts. That was our primary thing for 11 years. Like I know what it's like to be on the other end of that. But yeah, every interaction we have. So there's the deeper conversations, which we'll definitely talk about, but just make that decision, make that decision today that Mm -hmm. you're going to be the one that everybody after any interaction with you walks away feeling better. Mm -hmm. And that the impact you leave is a positive one right? Mm -hmm. Because it's totally possible to do that. And that in itself, in a season of gift giving, can be the gift. And Mm -hmm. perhaps you can help restore a little bit of hope and good faith in people too, to to know that that there are still people out there and there are still conversations out there that can be directed towards that which is light and good and true and beautiful. 
and that they can let their guard down with you. Mm -hmm. If they are going into situations like I admitted I do right now, where you're already on the defensive, if they can let their guard down with you and then someone else and then someone else, it'll really start to like break down the defenses of a lot of people, right? If they start going, wait a second, I don't have to fight everyone. That was a great conversation. (laughs) And so that, yeah, it's a, it's a really, I think a really valuable gift that we can give this year more than perhaps all the other years in recent history. Mm-hmm. And I was just going to say that, like, especially right now, um, yeah. it seems to be something of a silent, invisible battle, per se, right? There are yeah. so many kinds of battles happening in the world right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe one that we can really take to heart um, is one that is seeking, uh, fighting with everything that we have to preserve our humanity and to preserve our relationships um, come what may right and it it feels like a war sometimes (laughs) like this isn't it goes beyond what we're even talking about on the surface of everything from small talk to deeper conversations and really finds its root in holding together like the fabric of society (laughs) right (laughs) and we can do that over cocktails and and little hors d'oeuvres and that's amazing and um so Yes, let's let's approach this intentionally and get to work. Okay, so let's look at the history of the art of conversation. Well, we will first turn, as we usually do, to ancient Greece. And we want to talk a little bit about the sophists. They were teachers in the 5th and 4th centuries BC. They would teach one or more of the following subjects, philosophy, rhetoric, athletics, and math. The type of education they offered was called and I hope I'm pronouncing this ancient Greek word properly, um, arete, which prior to the 5th century BC referred to the aristocratic warrior virtues of courage and strength. But arete developed into an education in virtue and excellence as time went on, a little bit distanced from like this warrior mentality. The sophists traveled around and were paid to teach the young men of noble Greek society how to influence their fellow citizens. Regardless of the subject, their main gift was the gift of speech, the art of persuasion. It mattered more to the sophists that they won the argument rather than speaking accurately or truthfully. Today, Ben Shapiro famously coined the term, facts don't care about your feelings. But this wouldn't have held sway with the sophists. They wanted to grab you by the feels. And while the facts were a bit murky... Now, they were good, very good at what they did until someone else came along and fought back using a little something called reason and a little something (laughs) called logic. (laughs) Enter Socrates. Yeah, Yeah, those pesky pesky virtues. Logic. (laughs) Yes. Um, So Socrates and his aptly named Socratic method. Now, we know that Socrates lived from 470 BC until 399 BC. And if the math confuses you as much as it did me, that puts him at 71 years old when he died. Back to the Socratic method. (laughs) It's also known as the method of refutation. According to Wikipedia, and yes, I use Wikipedia because we aren't historians. The method goes as following. And this is just in my own words. I break it down, try to break it down very simply. So here it is. Number one, Socrates picks a subject that his opponent is knowledgeable about 
Number two, he asks them to define the subject. Number three, Socrates proceeds to ask questions that pick apart and inevitably contradict the original definition. Number four, the other person comes up with a new definition. Number five, Socrates picks apart that definition with more questions. Number six, Socrates never lets the other person forget that he's just simply looking for the truth. (laughs) Number seven, the person keeps speaking in circles, demonstrating their ignorance. Number eight, At the end, Socrates successfully casts doubt on whatever the first definition was and the subsequent definitions, which usually happen to be common knowledge or common opinion on things. Mm. The opinion held by the person that he argued with, he breaks apart and yay, Socrates wins. (laughs) That's the Socratic (laughs) method in a nutshell. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, what I'm gleaning from that is you you want to be Socrates. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I just... (laughs) I I often find myself perhaps in the opposing Socrates perspective. I know what that feels like. (laughs) But yeah, and so I do like the Socratic method of conversation because it's a way of keeping conversation going. I've often Mm -hmm. heard it referred to as like, you continue to just ask questions. Yes. Right? So your response is always a question to further the, um, to ask basically the person to further develop their thought and then you respond with another question yeah and I think that's a great tactic um you you could like seem like you're grilling people at a holiday party if you're using solely the Socratic method but something good to remember like if you're fishing for something to say ask them another question ask them a deeper question that's really good And I think it comes down to intention, too, because I think you can Mm -hmm. use it to um, just tear apart someone's argument like Socrates did. Or you can use it, like you said, to truly get to understand it better. Right. Mm -hmm. This this method really comes down to um, your intention and what you're using it for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Okay, speaking of another Greek, uh, I remember learning about rhetoric and Aristotle's Mm -hmm. art of persuasion and his Mm -hmm. teachings on that. Simply put, um, rhetoric is this art of persuasion through speaking and writing effectively. So there is a lot to unpack when it comes to rhetoric. But basically, to quote Aristotle himself, he says, quote, Of the modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word, there are three kinds. The first kind depends on the personal character of the speaker, the second on putting the audience into a certain frame of mind, and the third on the proof, or apparent proof, provided by the words of the speech itself. So then, um, according to Aristotle, the three things that we should keep in mind uh, when it comes to conversing in a persuasive and engaging manner. The first one is ethos. And this is the personal character of the speaker or the appeal to the character or reputation of who you are. To engage in deep, meaningful conversation, uh, we really need to establish credibility and rapport. And Mm -hmm. we can do this either by establishing our knowledge and expertise on a subject or even by being a person of strong character and virtue. How we live and what we know can be interchangeable and equally important when establishing ethos in conversation. So, you know, you can establish ethos a couple of different ways, like I mentioned. The first is to try to find common ground. You know, uh, we'll get more into common ground in a little bit, but what it does, I think, is it shows you have an openness and an honesty mm-hmm. about you that mm-hmm. naturally sets the other person at ease so that you are trustworthy and you're not going to be trying to dominate or take advantage of the conversation. 
So in that same vein, another way you can establish ethos so that it's always at the ready is to do that interior work we're always talking about in bettering ourselves and becoming people striving for virtue and good character in our everyday lives. Because if you think about it, we watch other people and we see how others live and whether we realize it or not, we're forming our opinions of them long before we enter into conversation with them. And so when we're mindful that it's also, that's also coming back on us too, we can already begin the work of becoming conversationalists without even speaking a word to begin with. Mm -hmm. So the next mean of persuasion is pathos and this is the appeal to emotion i don't think it means to become emotional per se and it certainly doesn't mean to give way to hysterics but it's more to recognize and realize that we are emotional beings and that not we're not always going to be persuaded purely based on logic or facts or reasons because it's just our human nature So when we're engaged in a good conversation, often there is this pathos element ongoing and sprinkled throughout the conversation. And I find it's by way of sharing personal experiences or anecdotes to illustrate a point or establish that rapport. And so the Art of Manliness website also suggests that you could use metaphors and storytelling and that they can really be helpful in engaging in this pathos element of conversation. And then the third means of persuasion is logos. And this is the rhetorical appeal to reason. So Aristotle taught that in this means, you are letting the words of your speech do the persuading. So the thing I find interesting about logos and using reasoning is that we have to be sure um, that when we're shifting into conversing using facts, that our facts or reasoning is valid and that these premises are true and that will make our point of view valid and solid. So... I say all this, the three means of persuasion in use in conversation, it's definitely more of a tool, logos is, to use when you're finding yourself in debate. But I do think that if we are in a conversation that may start veering into debate, and debate can be healthy and a lot of fun and awesome too, um, but we should just be sure to know whether our logos or our facts and reasoning um are in fact factual and true before we start um, using them in conversation as fact, or at least be upfront and acknowledging that we may need to look into things more. Uh, in this way, we can just avoid coming across as hypocritical or as someone who just speaks without thinking. And in a way too, if you think about it, that would destroy our ethos. And then the mm-hmm. cycle just continues. <laughs> And this is so clearly the evolution past the sophists who just wanted to convince you without necessarily using fact, right? So logic, reason, (laughs) let's remember these, these, uh, these building (laughs) blocks of a proper conversation. (laughs) So finally, we'll look at one more historical expert when it came to debate (laughs) and conversation. Someone we refer to all the time, and that's St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, obviously, we're great lovers of him, and we just Mm. thought that it was time to kind of define a method that we often refer to in this podcast, but we never really look into. So he used a method called disputed questions. Um, It was an academic debate technique used in medieval universities, also known in Latin as castiones disputate, Mm. um, or the scholastic method. 
So a question or topic would be introduced and then the best objections would be put forward and the defendant had to use reason and logic to make their case and answer each objection in a very thorough manner. Aquinas would do this very well, especially in his famous Summa Theologica. He would already anticipate what people would dispute in his writings and he would have the answers ready. He asked the questions and wrote the answers. So it's brilliant mm. and it's an approach I like to use. Mm -hmm. um, but again, we just want to make sure that we're not uh, already putting words into other people's mouths, right? But it is a fascinating way to approach subjects to really show that you've already thought about it from both sides. Yes, what I love about St. Thomas Aquinas's approach to this is that this is good debate style and it's good conversation style to know your opponent's viewpoint inside and out, mm -hmm. right? So maybe not even necessarily to mount your own defense, but right. I think it can just be a really good tool to have developed in your mind. You know how to do that, especially on the fly. I was just speaking to a friend the other day who was um, describing the missionaries that she knew in her own family and how they would really work on this, um, especially when they were speaking to people of different faith backgrounds, is that they would spend a lot of time really familiarizing themselves with that faith tradition because they wanted to be able to speak well on both subjects. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important for us to do if we're keen on good conversation. And having a broad knowledge of what kinds of topics, opinions, and ideas that are out there in the world is actually really important to being a good listener. And I just see a couple of really good advantages to this. First, if you can listen enough to know even just a little bit about what someone else's beliefs and opinions are, then you may be able to find something positive to say about it. And this, I feel, immediately diffuses a situation and can take away any edge that may be remaining on the other person's part. It really sets up the rest of the conversation in a framework of openness and safety, really, that you can both be vulnerable because you've made it clear that you're not here solely to prove a point and you're just here to discuss an idea. Like, how interesting. Now we're talking. And then the second now we're talking. Yeah, now I know. We're talking. <laughs> I did that on pun, yes. pun, pun. <laughs> and the second advantage, I think, is that it builds that ethos we were talking about in rhetoric. You know, that the person now knows exactly what kind of a person you are. Um, you're someone who is honest, someone who is open minded, who is interested in them as a person because you have found value in listening to what they have to say and looking into what they think. Um, I don't think there's a better or quicker way of building that kind of rapport that's needed to have a good conversation with someone than to show that you're really listening by relating yeah. something back to the person based on their own vantage point. Yeah, we've talked a lot about how to make your point, right? What mm -hmm. is like the onus on you as the person who's doing the speaking. But like you said, it's 50-50 and like listening has to be a huge part yeah. of this. <laughs> if you're not a good listener, then you're not a good conversationalist. And so there's one thing you and I both came across in our, in our research and it's the acronym SOLER, S-O-L-E-R. Mm -hmm. And I got the information from a website, um, SEGU.com edu, like education. Mm -hmm. And so let's just break down what the S-O-L-E-R stand for. And this is this how to be a really good active listener. So the S stands for squarely facing the person with your head and body. 
O stands for open posture, which means that your arms are not crossed. L stands for leaning, leaning towards the person. E reminds you to maintain eye contact. R stands for relaxed in the other behaviors listed above. Um, I think this is so good. And I know it's one of the things kids learn in kindergarten is how to be a mm. good listener, right? Like mm -hmm. how is your body showing that you're listening? <laughs> yes. and not, right. And I think especially in this era of phones, I know I have to remind my family all the time to put down their phone, like when yeah. I'm speaking to them. And I that while that might not be an issue at holiday gatherings, people hopefully won't have their phones in their hands. <laughs> um, it's taking it that step further. Mm -hmm. of doing these other things. I'm a notorious arm crosser. And so like knowing now that that body language really does say a lot, you know, I'll try to be more um, attentive when, mm -hmm. and showing that my body is listening, just like the little kindergartners. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I love that. It is something that is taught um, mm -hmm. specifically and intentionally. And the, the letter of the acronym that really stood out to me was the S the facing mm -hmm. the individual squarely yeah. because um, you know, and I, I think this kind of has more leeway than the other ones probably because you could be chatting while you're like in the kitchen doing final preparations or, you know, sitting on a couch where you're not necessarily facing each other like head on. But just this idea that your focus when you have to be, as you say, actively listening to what they're saying when it's something important, just that whole physical disposition towards another person is a huge percentage of how effective the conversation is going to be. And I just think that's such a good thing to keep in mind, um, especially if we are like kind of trying to carry conversations in the busyness of the holiday season as well, not to forget that our body posture and positioning means a lot in conversation too. Yeah. And I'm just, as you're saying that, I'm realizing like as the hostess, if it's at our home, we can kind of keep an eye on that and like think do, that's why it's called conversation clusters of chairs or conversation setups in living rooms of furniture is, mm. is the way you've set up the home before you have everybody over conducive to having those types of conversations or do people really have to crank their body around, right. To, to be heard on different areas. So, um, I notice it in my own living room that it can be a little awkward if people are sitting on our one couch and turning to the one other chair and then back to the other coach then back to the other chair so just mm. as the host or hostess look at your own house before you have people over and just have these little conversation clusters set up where people can go and sit, especially our elderly relatives who have mm. a harder time hearing they might mm -hmm. it might be nice to have a little quiet spot off to a corner where they can sit and somebody can go sit with them and have a talk where they're not trying to pull out one voice out of many Mm hmm. Oh, that's such a good point. Like you can already be facilitating good conversation before people even get there. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, another point about listening that I found really fascinating, I found it on the Big Think YouTube channel in a video that features Dr. Emily Chamley Wright. And she was acknowledging the importance of this, quote, less often discussed and less often celebrated skill of sympathetic listening. Um, you know, and she refers to it as this question of, am I really understanding the points from the other mm. person's perspective? And that's really good to keep in mind, because as you said, Lindsay, you know, if you're missing the listening aspect, you're probably actually not even having a conversation. Mm. You're giving a speech <laughs> yes, yes. at that point. <laughs> right. And so what I loved about this, though, is that it is this deliberate choice 
to set aside at a certain point, even if it's just temporarily, the desire to look for slight missteps in logic or mistakes in thinking from the person you're talking to. And you're choosing to set that aspect aside for a time so that you can really listen carefully to what the other person is saying and gain that insight and gain that understanding as to why it is perhaps, for example, that they have come to such a wildly different perspective or conclusion on the same topic that you're both discussing. And so Dr. Chamley Wright finishes off with this, and I think it's the perfect summing up point on what sympathetic listening is, is she says, quote, I, the speaker, should assume that that person that I'm having the conversation with is intelligent and is exercising reason, end quote. And I loved that because I think we need to enter into conversations in good faith. We need Mm. to understand that we may think that we've used critical thinking (laughs) skills and we have exercised reason and we have formed intelligent points and facts, but that the other person we're engaging with has probably also thought the same way right. <laughs> about yep. their points of conversation too truth and their bomb prob- michelle that's right that is a truth bomb <laughs> yeah they can uh, they are also probably thinking that they have to the best <laughs> of their abilities exercised critical thinking and everything so yeah to be able to listen well is um at the very least 50 percent of the importance of conversation Well, that perfectly leads into the next thing, which is how to talk about those hard topics, the things that are on everybody's minds right now, and that can have a significant impact on our relationship and that will likely come up during holiday visits. I came across a great article on Motherly that shares the acronym VALUES, and this technique for having the hard conversation seems to be very balanced and respectful. And Michelle, it's so much of what you were just saying about why it's so important. So let's look at values. So the V means validate their point of view. And you can validate someone's thoughts and feelings without necessarily agreeing with them. I think that mm. that's a huge point. Mm-hmm. A means agree with something they say. You were talking about this earlier about finding some common ground. So even mm-hmm. I think with very opposed different opinions, there's still a com- common ground. Mm-hmm. Like we can always agree that family matters and that these past nearly two years have been very hard. If all else mm-hmm. fails, you can agree upon those things, right? And yes. that's where you can meet in the middle. Now the L means let them know why it's right for you, whatever decision you've made in your family. Now this is different from convincing people. You don't have to do that, but Mm -hmm. you can explain why you made a decision for yourself and your family. And this does come up all the time when we're talking about our kids, right? And family discussions. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that. I, I, in my head, it's always about convincing the other person and yet to just be freed from that expectation Mm -hmm. actually within myself that I don't actually have to convince anybody, but I, I, you know, you can owe an explanation sometimes about the way you've done things. And that that's a very different thing. Now the you means upside, keep your tone positive and be the one to point out the silver linings, make that decision that you're going to be the one who does that. Keep in control of yourself. The E in values means everybody wins. Again, you don't have to convince anyone or bring anyone over to your side. 
everyone wins when common ground is found. And this common ground will allow everyone to walk away from the conversation feeling heard and hopefully happy. And finally, the S, it means stand firm. I'm taking this quote directly now from Motherly and says, this is a conversation, not a negotiation. Whoa. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't feel pressured into changing a decision that you've already made for your family. So you can stand firm in whatever you're already believing when you've entered into this conversation. But again, keep the tone under control, stay positive, and and maybe inject a little humor. Just just be mm. very intentional about the tone you're using as you're standing firm. Mm-hmm. So remember also that it is 100% normal to have different views on what has happened over these past two years. But it is also true that regardless of how well you might try to practice those values and those tips that we just gave, Others are not going to be as kind, right? Others might not have put in the work trying to learn those values and trying to put them into into play in a conversation. But you, you can walk away from those interactions with peace in your heart, knowing that you did all you could do to be a good listener and a loving friend or family member. And that's all you can control. Mm -hmm. That is such a powerful point to remember is that we have no control on how someone responds to us, Yep, that we can be the most well-spoken. We can be the most gracious in our speech. We can be trying the hardest (laughs) to make that common ground and that connection, and it could still fall flat and it could still be taken wrongly. and not have the outcome that we really hoped for. But that that part is out of our control. And I like what you were saying that even just knowing that you really did your best to set yourself up to have a kind and understanding conversation, that can in and of itself give you peace of mind. All right. So these were really good points for if some of those harder topics come up in your gatherings or conversations this time of year, but not every conversation is going to be so loaded or Mm -hmm. so grave, right? And there are still plenty of opportunities to practice conversation that may not go quite as deep. So we were looking into some tips, right, Lindsay? And I came across this great quote by way of our first tip. And it's that quote, I is the smallest letter in the alphabet. Don't make it the largest word in your vocabulary. Ooh. End quote. I know. <laughs> Boom. Another yeah. bomb dropped. Wow. Uh, and that was by Dorothy Sarnoff, who was an American opera singer. And it kind of correlates with something that Audrey Hepburn's mother once told her. And that is that I in conversations is boring. Mm. So I love that because I don't think it means that we can never state our opinions or use the word I. Like, it's not a banned word. (laughs) Yeah. But I do think it's a good reminder of the proper place of I in a conversation that we can use it to relate something the other person has said to us, maybe as a springboard to the next point or as an assist to asking a deeper question. And then the other tip that I really thought and use often myself too is just to not be afraid of pausing. You're allowed Mm. to stop and think. Yes. (laughs) I do this all the time, right, Lindsay? I'm just like, let me think about this. (laughs) And I've had to learn to allow that. Not that I'm giving you permission, but for me, I don't usually pause, right? And it, it took me a while to like 
let that happen without me feeling uncomfortable about the pause because Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like we, Mm -hmm. I had to learn that as, I guess as a listener. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's something that we feel awkward with pauses. Yeah. So on the website, elegantwoman.org, it says that, you know, most conversational errors are committed not by those who talk too little, but by those who talk too much. (laughs) And (laughs) yeah. So, you know, I really like to think about what I've just heard often before I respond. Um, But there are a couple of tips for that if you don't just want to just stare at someone (laughs) as you're collecting your thoughts. Either I will try to fill that pause, especially if it's a short beat, with either what I call an affirming sound, like, "Mm mm-hmm, or, "Mm." (laughs) hmm, or just... A general statement that acknowledges that I've heard what you've just said, like, oh, that's a good point. Or, oh, that's interesting. That's me mentally trying to think of a response, right? That's giving me a second to think. But I have also, in some cases where more thought may be required, I've just been honest. And I've said something like, wow, I've never thought of it that way before. Let me think on that for a second. Yeah. And on the one hand, it buys you time. And on the other hand, once you do begin talking again, I feel like the other person now knows that you're probably thinking out loud at this point. So if it becomes a bit rambly or you misspeak, (laughs) you know, it can grant you a bit of grace in the conversation too. And I think this is a good time to point out to our listeners that this podcast is very edited by you, Michelle. So very. And I think that that's important to know because you guys might listen to this and think, wow, Lindsay and Michelle might have mastered the art of conversation. But Michelle has deliberately yeah, (laughs) removed those pauses, right? Or us rambling. We definitely get rambly. And one of us will just trail off and go, that was rambling. (laughs) Right? Cut that out. Right. Cut and we we'll even say, like, we're not going to put that in. Like, we yep. actually make those comments. Yeah. Good yep. point. And so you might listen to this and think, well, I can't converse with somebody like this, but this isn't exactly a proper example of a real life conversation. This mm-hmm. is very produced. Right. Yes. So I just, I think that that's interesting. I, I laughed how, because one of the first steps you do in editing this podcast is removing the pauses. It's the yeah. one of the easiest <laughs> first editing steps. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we're editing for, the listening experience of it. Yes, yes. Right? But if, yeah, it's truly not an accurate representation of the the real life conversations, even when we get together in person. Yes, it doesn't sound absolutely. like the podcast. So yeah, no. you're right. I love what you said about I and using I language because I am <laughs> um, one of those people that definitely loves to jump in with my own stories. It's just, you know... It's something I've tried to work on and try to conquer. But one of the tips that I came across for on the Art of Conversation does talk about injecting your own stories in and that it can really help. But again, you have to be really aware of what you're doing. So this tip was give sneak peeks of your interests. So it says usually conversations between two people who have just met, they, they stick to familiar and like surface level topics. This is all about the first impression. You want the other person to look forward to talking with you again in the future. And if you've only kind of talked on surface level things, they might think, well, we have nothing to talk about next time. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that you can make them excited to talk with you again the next time you run into each other or maybe in your next cycle around the dining room, like with your cocktail, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is that you can share some of your interests, right? You can talk about your travels or sports you play, hobbies. I do think sometimes we get scared off by this because 
we think we are talking too much about ourselves, but when it's done well, it really draws the other person into the conversation, especially someone who's a little more introverted because they might have time to think about something that they want to then share with you or talk to you about the next time. And they'll be excited to talk to you, you know, the next time around. So another tip I came across, and this is, I stumbled across a website called getthefriendsyouwant.com. Oh. <laughs> a helpful resource right, for right. all your friendship needs. Yes. That's right. So another thing that they recommend is cleaning up your talk. So they don't necessarily mean like not swearing, although you and I are big fans of you know mm, that, not, um, not blaspheming, not um, swearing. But what they meant is make less noise. Again, this is for me. I am just a big (laughs) ball of frantic noise. Um, But it says like, polish up your language, be clear and make your point. Learn to tell only the important parts of a story, like figure Mm. out, you know, how to tell the story. This article wanted to explain that when you self-edit, the people listening don't have to spend their own mental energy sorting through the unnecessary details. Mm, this is such a good point. My mom always um, told me in terms of writing, but it applies to this. She's always she would always say, "Pracy writing, Michelle. Pracy writing." Mm, but it means yeah. like summarize, <laughs> like yeah. shorten it up here. <laughs> and I do see how that would really keep conversations focused. Otherwise, that is when things can get rambly. So another tip for mastering the art of conversation is honing your comedic timing. Now you and I, we both think we're hilarious, right, Michelle? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Obviously, yes. (laughs) We are really good at this. Um, But the question to ask yourself is, can you diffuse tension and bring levity to a situation? Do you know how to do that? Do you have that skill? It really is something that makes a great conversationalist. Now, you don't have to be a comedian. You don't have to say things that will actually make people laugh out loud chuckle, (laughs) guffaw, (laughs) but it means that you have a good sense of humor and, and that involves that good timing, a sense when you can like push the boundaries a little bit. Um, Mm. there are people who naturally have this as a gift, but one of the interesting things about this is that you can learn this, like you can learn Mm. how to make people laugh, right? So you can pay attention to what is funny on TV shows to you, or if you have a stand-up comedian that you like, and there are also plenty of books that help you develop your sense of humor. There's a few dry dad jokes you can memorize, right? (laughs) Have stored in your arsenal to break out, but yeah, comedic timing, it, it really is here. And I agree with them that it is that mark of a great conversationalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a well-timed one-liner or mm-hmm. even like a groaner. Yeah, or, a groaner. Um, <laughs> yes. Puns are always on the table. You can yes. just throw out a good pun. Yes. Um, and I I would love to add to like a, a sense of a, just a bit of like self-deprecating humor. Oh, yeah. Being able to laugh at yourself is yeah. often one of the easiest ways to like get everyone else to loosen up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like it's, I know for me, it's, it spares me nothing. Yeah. (laughs) We have no pride left. Right. Uh, But yeah, just being able to kind of laugh at yourself or if you like mix up a word or something like that, be kind of exaggerated in your own response to yourself. I really Mm -hmm. feel like that kind of levity too, just kind of breaks the tension because everyone, yeah, feels like it can just be a little bit more casual. There's doesn't need to be the stiffness um, if that's what everyone's feeling. 
Now, the final tip that I have here is a, just a really good one. And it is a reminder that the art of conversation can be rehearsed. Now, not necessarily mm. talking about role playing, but you could do that. But it just says that the person who's telling that really great story or the person who seems like they really know what they're doing in a conversation, chances are they've told that story 50 times. Chances mm. are they've used that little uh, groaner, the little zinger, the one liner, um, any, even just like their canned response to something like there's a very good chance those people are using something very comfortably that they have said over and over and over again. Um, this is, they, they've really learned and again, honed their timing, their tone and their delivery. So this is true even with arguments, right? And mm -hmm. I know that this is doing this podcast has kind of helped me learn to think better on my feet. I don't know about you, Michelle, but, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've learned <laughs> that I don't, I don't have a pocket Michelle as we always joke that I wish I had that could edit me <laughs> in real time. Patent <laughs> <Yes>. pending. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll make that in our merch shop, a little, yeah. anim like a little cute cartoon, you <laughs> and a pocket on a t-shirt. <laughs> I would love it. <laughs> a little 8-bit avatar. It's coming yes, for you. Yep. Yes. But um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that we've like even definitions we've used over and over again over the years mm -hmm. on this podcast that I know how to say in person now, right? So mm -hmm. anyways, all of that to say this can be rehearsed. It really can be practiced. Don't feel bad about sharing the same story or the same personal thing to all different people. They haven't heard it before. So get really good at telling that story, the story that is like, the story that defines your family. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's an excellent point. And that's something I've noticed listening to a lot of podcasts um, and other interviews and things mm -hmm. like that is exactly your point. And I think we've talked about this too, that often, you know, if you see one guest pop up on several different podcasts, often that person has a core message that yes. they're really trying to share with the world, right? And they're not trying to reinvent themselves every single time. So I can totally see by the time you get to the, you know, the fourth, fifth, sixth time you're, you're a guest on a podcast or you're make, you're giving a presentation in that aspect, you already know the material so well. It does just sound like it's so off the cuff and you think, how does that person just how are they just able to speak so casually on the subject? But it can be like that just with conversation too. I love that you pointed that out. Like what are the aspects of your own life, your hobbies, your family history, your funny stories that, um, that you can just pull out at a moment's notice, almost like mm -hmm. a little toolkit of conversation that you have. And then uh, as you use them more and more, you also gain that fluidity in your speech. Interestingly, you had a quote from a professional opera singer who speaks on the art of conversation. And I also mm -hmm. have a quote from a different professional opera oh, singer wow. who is known <laughs> for her talk on um, a co on conversation. She actually has a TED talk that was viewed over 10 million times. And her mm -hmm. name is Celeste Headley. She's also a journalist, a radio show host, and she wrote a book all about this. And one of the things she said is, and I quote, just listening to someone is an act of love. That's a gift. We always feel like we need to prove how smart we are or prove how much we know and interject what we think and give advice to other people. Sometimes the best thing you can do for that person is just to listen to them. 
And that fits in so well with the concept of conversation being that two-way street, right? Like you're not giving a speech or a presentation, but you're also, you know, expected to engage a little bit. People do want to hear you speak up. And so learning this art, this science of conversing with other people is just as much about the other person as it is about you as well. And if we can be deliberate about honing this skill, what a wonderful way to give back to our communities and our families and our groups of friends, especially during this holiday season, the season of gift giving by giving them the gift of our attention and our friendship. Okay, it's time for our What We're Loving This Week segment of the show. So Lindsay, what have you been loving this week? Well, you know that I have a new obsession. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. time to share it with everybody else. But this has been my go-to for several weeks now whenever I have a 10-minute break. So there is a YouTuber and channel. Her name is Hammy Mommy. Now I'll spell that because you're probably like, what are you saying? But it's H-A-M-I-M-O-M-M-Y. Hammy Mommy. Now, the woman behind Hammy Mommy is 34-year-old Kim Song-mi, who normally uses the alias Hey Greendal due to her mm. strong desire to remain anonymous. She never had dreams of fame, and the immense popularity of her channel has completely taken her by surprise. She has nearly 2 million subscribers. She is married and the mother of one, and her young daughter is named, you guessed it, Hammy. <laughs> and Hammy is the cutest little girl. The New York Times ran an article on her this past February and described her as Marie Kondo meets Huga, which is pretty much my dream combo. (laughs) That that is my dream aesthetic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So she has barely done a face reveal. So you don't really see her aside from like the back of her head, which is often in a long, loose ponytail or a bun that's very reminiscent of a Disney princess (laughs) or her (laughs) delicate waist defined by a cute skirt or apron. And you'll hear snippets of conversations in Korean, but you rarely hear her voice standing out from others. She blends into the scene. And this is, I think, what I love so much. She's the ultimate homemaker. Um, They are currently renting a home in Seoul. Um, It's the first time they've ever lived in a detached house versus the typical apartment living in South Korea. But she wanted her daughter to experience a a house during this lockdown. So they rented one. They even do a video where they go house hunting in Korea, which is just so cool to watch. She's Mm -hmm. also the most clean woman that I've ever seen. And she's incredibly (laughs) environmentally conscious. She tries to reuse everything. And I've already learned so much from her. She's an excellent cook and it's the most healthy food I've ever seen. She's Mm -hmm. also very educated and had a high powered job and worked as a translator before taking some time off to raise her daughter. Basically, it's a fairy tale, but it's better than that because her videos (laughs) sum up the very essence of my favorite theme, which is the extraordinary beauty of ordinary life. Now, once you've started watching Hammy Mommy, you'll find lots of similar accounts popping up. This homemaking YouTube trend is pretty big in Mm -hmm. Korea right now, right? Mm -hmm. And I've watched others, but just no one really comes close to her. Um, You can also start searching up slow living vlogs, and you can even like pick a country, and you'll find certainly other people trying to do what she's doing all around the world, and just women showing us just how skilled and beautiful homemaking really is. Mm, I know you recommended Hammy Mommy and Mm -hmm. 
truly, it's become our obsession over yeah. here, too. My kids watch it. I know I texted you after <laughs> yes. we watched our first one. Yes. My kids were like, can I please wash the floor? Can I Can I do the dishes tomorrow? And I was like, how about we clean our rooms, children? That could be a great first step. Yes. <laughs> but there is something so peaceful and calm about watching her move through her house. Mm-hmm. When you said she blends into her house, it's yep. so true. It's like it, it, she's so efficient. She's so... Um, good at cleaning and cooking but at the same time you think you're watching almost one of those ambiance yes videos it feels like that also in a similar way so you know what it is kind of like Liziki, mm-hmm. who we recommended last year, but even more relaxing. Yeah, if you could think of it that way. Yeah. Yes, and not as intimidating because Liziki's like building her house right from sticks <laughs> and true. some mud, and then <laughs> sewing all of the furniture for her house. <laughs> so she's incredible. True, if, right? It feels like Cammy, mommy, like like you said, like your kids were inspired. I watch her for twenty minutes, and I get mm-hmm. into a total zone, and she's the only thing yeah. that relaxes me. But then I jump up and I want to clean just like your kids like the reason I've been so frantically cleaning on social media the last couple (laughs) weeks is thanks to Hammy Mommy oh my goodness it is brilliant and I know like I've started washing dishes by hand Mm -hmm. again because I'm like oh it's just so beautiful yeah (laughs) so beautiful so what Mm -hmm. have you been loving this week well, I just listened to another audiobook, mm-hmm. and this one is called Till We Have Faces by Ooh. C.S. Lewis. Oh, yes. Have you ever heard of this book? No. Okay. So apparently this was one of the last books he wrote um, in his older age, uh-huh. and it's a novelization and retelling of the popular Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche. Mm. So uh, basically, to give some background, the original myth centers around Psyche, who's the third daughter of a king and his queen, and she is by far the most beautiful of the girls. The people of her kingdom worship her for her beauty, and this angers Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty and love. So in the myth, Aphrodite tells her son Cupid to take the girl away and get rid of her, but instead he falls in love with her and hides her away in his castle and marries her. The catch is that he tells her that for the time being, she can't look at him. She can't see him. And he it's because he fears word getting back to Aphrodite <laughs> mm. of his disobedience. Now, the original myth does continue as to what happens next with Cupid and Psyche. But this is the main gist of C.S. Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces. And so he tells this story from the perspective of Psyche's older sister, Orwell. And it's really interesting to see how it differs and adds to the original myth. Apparently, C.S. Lewis couldn't get this myth out of his mind because some of the actions of the characters seemed so illogical to him and their motivations weren't good enough (laughs) for Mm -hmm. him. So he rewrote the story focusing far more on the character motive and development, especially of this older sister. All in all, I can't recommend this book enough, and it completely captivated me. It's a truly enjoyable mix of fairy tale, myth, philosophy, and a commentary on human character. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. If you want to get in touch and chat with us about our topic today, you can find us on our website, 
www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com or leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at The Modern Lady Podcast. I'm Michelle Sachs, and you can find me on Instagram at mmsachs. And I'm Lindsay Murray, and you can find me on Instagram at lindsayhomemaker. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, and we will see you next time.